Welcome to Larger Story Messages with Dr. Larry Crabb, helping you find purpose and joy in your life and relationships. For more teaching and resources, visit LargerStory.com. John's first epistle, chapter 3. I can't get that skit out of my mind. A little deja vu for some of us. We were living in South Florida some years ago, and we decided we would go out for pizza one evening, Rachel and me. And we chose to go to a restaurant called the Pizza Board and took two of our close friends with us. They were in the back seat. I was driving. And we were going to go down to Pizza Board, a restaurant that I had been to 30, 40, 50 times already. I knew how to get there. We were driving down Glades Avenue, which was a four-lane highway on both sides, uh, approaching, no, it wasn't Glades Avenue, I forget what it was. Rachel, where are you? She didn't come to hear me tonight? Oh, here. Glades turning on second, that's what it was. I did forget how to get there. We're driving down, it kind of ruins the whole story to tell you the truth. We're driving down Glades Avenue. It's a four-lane highway each way. And when you get to to 2nd Avenue, there's a a traffic light there. And you must turn left. And when you turn left on 2nd Avenue off of Glades, it's about a mile maybe down on the left-hand side. Well, we're approaching 2nd Avenue, and I, steering the car rather adroitly as I can do at times, I move the car into the the, the, the most left lane. And I stopped at the red light. And I put on my turn signal. Now, had you been in the car and had noticed that I had moved the car into the left lane, had my left turn signal on, what would you presume I was about to do when the light changed? As soon as the light changed to green, before I could respond by pressing on the gas pedal, my wife said, turn left here, honey. (laughs) Now, how do you feel when that happens to you? Do you understand the anger that rises within you somehow? I was furious. Something in me thought, I know it's a, it's a left turn here. I know that. I think it's going to turn right or it's going to turn left. I know it. But I couldn't say all that. I was counseling with a couple in the back seat. <laughs> so I did what all good Christian husbands do. I just kind of took it and stuck it inside somewhere. And thanks very much, dear. And turned left and... Drove down, and as we're driving down 2nd Avenue, there's the sign for Pizza Board. It's a big sign, and it has flashing lights that says Pizza Board. And as we're approaching, as I'm braking to make the second left turn with my turn signal on, my wife says, here it is. I knew that. How do you all handle that? Just like I did, I suppose, we... um, I got out of the car to go into the restaurant and forgot to open the door for her. (laughs) Walked in, sat down in the restaurant and um, stared at the menu. She kind of looked up at some point and said, something wrong? (laughs) No. Change your pine. What does it mean to change? What does it mean to really, really change? Anybody feel the need for change? Paul says we're transformed. The word really is metamorphosis. 
Paul says there's a radical change that's possible. Well, what is the change that's possible in the Christian's life, and how does it come about? Listen to, to John in his first epistle, chapter 3. He says, How great is the love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we're, we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Dear friends, now we are children of God. And what will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him. Why? What's going to produce the change? We're going to see Him. My brother's seen the face of Jesus. That's why he's changed. To whatever degree is possible for me to change in this life, never apart fully from sin, but to whatever degree is possible for me to change in this life and respond with love to my wife during the silly little irritations of turn left here, honey. To whatever degree it's possible for me to become the kind of person that can handle the stresses and strains of life, it's going to require that somehow, in some form, I find God more deeply than I found Him already. And that's my theme and my comments with you this evening. We shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. Is it possible to really change, get beneath the surface of most people's lives and what you find is a great deal of change in many of our lives. I'm grateful for the fact that I think to some degree I'm a different man now than I was ten years ago, but I'm so much more aware of how far yet I have to go. At the dinner table tonight, we were talking about the stresses of life and how when you get beneath the surface of most people's lives, you know what you find? You know what you find, because it's in your life, it's in my life. I'm tired a lot. I'm real tired a lot of the time. There are times that life feels to me like I'm walking through a freshly poured sidewalk. And every foot that I, every time I pull my foot up to take another step, it's encased in heavy cement and it's hard to walk. Sometimes I feel like just getting out of bed deserves a round of applause. And I feel internally, just like you do, I suppose, that if anybody knew what I've gone through, and nobody does. And that's true, by the way. And no one knows what you've gone through. And you've, you know that no matter how close a friend you have, or how great a pastor you have, or how wonderful a spouse you have, or how good a best friend you might, you might have, that no matter how deeply you've poured out your heart to somebody, nobody knows exactly what it's like inside of your heart. And something inside of you says, just like me, if somebody knew what, what I've gone through, and if someone knew how hard it is sometimes for me just to take the next step, then you wouldn't be critical of me. You'd applaud me for what little I do right. The roots of a very pharisaical, self-centered attitude. What does it mean to... To change. What is God's part? My wife and I were in Germany last year ministering to a group of missionaries that um, have made it their specialized ministry to work with American servicemen. And one of the folks that we were talking with was uh, the field director in the base where we were located that week, the camp we were located. 
And he told me in tears, he said, I just don't know how, how God operates in people's lives. I don't know what to expect of him anymore. I've got six GIs. They're all Christian young men. They're all away from home, all living over here in base. And every one of them has homosexual struggles and they despise their deviant sexual urges. And every day is a monumental battle for them living in the barracks, taking common showers. And I have said to them, we'll pray about it. We'll read the scriptures together. I don't know what to do. What is God supposed to do in the middle of that kind of struggle? What does it mean to know God, to find him in the middle of that kind of struggle? What's it mean to find God in the middle of struggles of, with stress and burnout? One of the major points that I made this morning was that I think perhaps one of the greatest errors in our day is that we have focused so much on our problems that they have taken absolutely center stage. Nothing matters more than the resolution of our problems, and somehow we go to the scriptures not to find him, but to use him, and there's a profound difference. And now we come to God no longer to worship, but to manipulate now we come to God no longer to trust, but to negotiate. What does it mean in the middle of our struggles, whether it's homosexual desires, whether it's business stress? Obviously, there are things to be done. Obviously, there are decisions to be made. Obviously, there are principles to follow to handle our lives. But none of those principles, none of the things that we learn to do, take away the problems in our lives. They will be with us always. And I want to submit to you as the central thesis of tonight and perhaps the whole week that the major use to which we can put our problems is to find in them an avenue to know the Lord more deeply. And that sounds strange, perhaps coming from a psychologist's mouth whose business is supposed to be to get people over their problems. I do a lot of radio shows and a fair number of call-in shows, and the typical pattern in call-in shows, and I feel for the people that call, if I were in the phone calling, I'd say the same thing. I'm not being critical. But the typical thing that people say when they have come, when they call to a psychologist, to a counselor in a call-in show, is to is they have, have, have a two-part thing that they say. For part one is, here's my problem. Part two, what am I supposed to do? Get practical. Come on, counselor, tell me what to do because nothing matters more than finding some wisdom from the Bible, I'm a Christian, but some wisdom that I can apply and make my problems go away. Folks, there's a whole different way to approach the reality of struggles in life. Nothing's wrong with working to get over your problem. Nothing's wrong with seeing a counselor to get over your depression, to get over the eating disorders, to get over the marital strife, to improve your relationships. I'm all for that, but never make it bottom line. The bottom line is, how do I, how do I find God? Knowing that when I find God, a lot of the problems will not clear up. Not until heaven. I told you this morning, it's been a year and a half since I prayed that prayer. God, I know you're all I have, but I don't know you well enough. For you to be all that I need. Help me to find you. Help me to know you more deeply so I can survive the difficulties of life with meaning and with joy. Our journey this morning took us, started with this at uh, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. You might turn to that again very briefly. Those who were here this morning will be caught right up, and those who weren't here, perhaps you can pick up the thread of the second half of this message that I began this morning. What does it mean to find God in the middle of problems? What do you, how do you help the homosexual GI that didn't want to give in to temptation? Side thought. Can you bear a side thought before I get back to the main thought? 
wonder if you understand that the problem in most of our lives is not that bad passions are too strong. It's that good passions are too weak. The way to deal with the person struggling with sexual deviancy, the way to deal with the obsessive compulsive, the way to deal with the anorexic, the way to deal with the person whose anger is so strong it controls them is not to find some way to reduce the strength of the bad passion. It's rather to increase the strength of good passion. How do you find the Lord and develop a passion for him so that we're panting after him like the deer pants after the water brooks? What does it mean to develop a deep passion for knowing God? How do we do that? That's what needs to be done. I was working with a woman just uh, two months ago, three months ago perhaps, who told me a very sad story as I was doing a seminar in her city She approached me and told me the story, and she came to visit with me, and we counseled together for a bit. She told me that she had spent 16 years in the lesbian lifestyle, and three years ago had left it, became a Christian, and decided that obviously it was not the Lord's will for her to be involved in that. She knew it was repugnant to God, and that it was not his will for her to be involved in that sort of immorality. And so she left her lover, she left the woman she was living with, and she said within two days of her obeying God, her mind snapped. And she began to develop thoughts that were plaguing her 24 hours a day. Terrible thoughts. Many of them vicious and seemingly demonic. Certainly angry. Blasphemous thoughts. I spent a week with her in counseling. I was of some help. And the major help that I was in the course of that week of six or eight hours of counseling, intensive counseling was to ask her if there was anything that she wanted in her life more than she wanted relief from those thoughts. Is there any passion in your soul that's deeper, that's stronger, that we can appeal to, that we can develop, that we can nourish, that's deeper than your determination to overcome this problem that's plaguing you and messing up your life profoundly? And her response was, if I could know God in the middle of this, that's all I'd ask for. What do you say next? What does it mean to know God in the middle of your business stress? What's it mean to know God in the middle of a difficult marriage? What's it mean to know God in the middle of of a failed marriage? What's it mean to know God in the middle of visiting your son in jail? I was speaking with John White, Dr. John White, the psychiatrist. He's made this public, so I'm, I'm not telling any stories out of school. I was speaking with him some years ago, and we had lunch together, and I said to Dr. White, Dr. White, tell me where you're heading after this speaking engagement, thinking he might have been going home or to the next conference. And he said, I'm going to go visit my 25-year-old boy in jail. How do you survive that? Our comments this morning began with Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Anyone who comes to him in the middle of the struggles of life Anyone who comes to God must believe that God exists as he reveals himself, I believe, is the primary thrust of the passage. It isn't saying you cannot be an atheist. It's saying rather than that, assuming, of course, you are an atheist, it's assuming that you must believe in the God that reveals himself in the Bible, which is not always the God you want to see revealed in the Bible, because the God of the Bible is, is, is unpalatable to our taste many times. What Steve said to the night was so good when he said... Um, If you've not stood before God and been afraid, you've never stood before God. That's so good. We saw this morning as we talked about this passage that perhaps the life of Enoch serves as an illustration of what it means to come to God. 
And just to review very, very briefly, without supporting that assertion that I dealt with this morning a little bit, I suggested that the Bible tells us three things about the life of Enoch, three things that perhaps illustrate the principle of how it is that we are to come to God in the middle of all of our struggles. What are the conditions for seeking Him with all our heart, knowing that when we do seek Him with all our heart, we will find Him, because God tells us that's what will happen in Jeremiah 29. When you seek Me, you will find Me. When you seek Me with all your heart, I will be found by you. So when you come to me, I'm going to reveal myself to you. I delight to reveal myself to you. Whether you're struggling with business stress or homosexual urges, whatever your problem might be, I'm going to move into your heart and you're going to develop a confidence in my character and in my goodness that will not take away the pain, but will support you with meaning and joy in the middle of continuing frustration, difficulty, stress, and pain. And the passion for me will become stronger than all other passions. Other passions will be there, but they will become controllable. They will no longer dominate. They will no longer have that power to ruin your life. There will be a passion for me that will become stronger than all other passions if you come to me the way Enoch came to me. And he came in three ways this morning we suggested from the text. First, we suggested that Enoch walked with God. His deep motivation lined up with God's motivation. We discussed that at length this morning. Secondly, we learned that Enoch pleased God. He was demanding nothing now in this world the way you and I typically demand much in this world. And because he was not demanding anything in this world, but like the folks talked about in Hebrews, he was looking for another city, a heavenly one. Therefore, God was not ashamed to be called their God. And therefore, because his enduring city was a city that was yet to come, he was then freed to not require to arrange things now, but freed to do good works, and that's what pleased God. That was point number two. The third thing we saw about Enoch this morning was that he saw sin. That's just in the book of Jude. He saw sin as a more serious problem than pain. And that made him value forgiveness more than healing. Other side comment, if you'll forgive it. I believe that one of the great needs of the church today is to focus less on a theology of recovery and more on a theology of suffering. What does it mean to suffer well? The root of suffering well is always gratitude. For sins forgiven. Remember my closing observation this morning, those of you who are here. All I've said so far, this, now I said this morning, I've just reviewed for you. Now I want to move on to some newer thoughts. This morning I closed the message by making the observation in the book of Jude that when Jude identified Enoch and quoted his sermon, the only recorded sermon we have, spoken by Enoch in the scripture, that Jude identified Enoch by saying, Enoch, seventh from Adam. Remember that? Have you pondered that this afternoon? I wonder why he put it there. Well, let me tell you how I thought. I'm just spending this week telling you my journey and since March 17th, 91, two weeks after my brother was taken home in a plane wreck, my journey and what it means to know God more deeply. All I'm doing is sharing with you my, my testimony, really, and the verses that God has used to help and encourage and sometimes puzzle and confuse me. And as I noticed that particular phrase, Enoch, seventh from Adam, one thought that occurred to me was that perhaps he was doing more than identifying Enoch 
by letting us know it was this Enoch versus some other Enoch. There were other Enochs in the Bible. Perhaps he was doing more. Perhaps he was suggesting that the Enoch, who was seventh from Adam, through the line of Seth, illustrates the principle of Hebrews 11.6 in a way that seventh from Adam through the line of Cain does not illustrate. Remember, Adam and Eve had two boys. One was killed, the second was raised up. And now they have two boys who married and had children. They had Cain and they had Seth. And the line of Seth moves through Scripture. The line of Cain moves through Scripture. In Scripture, you always have two lines that eventuate in the sheep and the goats. And I began to wonder, well, if Enoch was seventh from Adam through the godly line of Seth, then I wonder who was seventh from Adam through the ungodly line of Cain, and could I learn more about how I can come to God in the middle of my struggles and my perplexities and my stress and my fatigue and my problems and my secret struggles that no one knows about? Is it possible that I can learn from looking at the one who was seventh from Adam to the line of Cain how not to come to God? If I can learn from Enoch how to come to God, can I perhaps learn from his counterpart in the ungodly line of Cain how not to come to God? Who was seventh from Adam through Cain's line? Look back at Genesis 4, and let's look at that for a few moments tonight and see if we can get some negative modeling, some understanding of how not to come to God. Enoch teaches us how to come to God, some preliminary conditions for coming to God in a way that develops a passion for Him that is a priority passion which consumes all other passions. What's an illustration of how not to come to God? Perhaps the seventh from Adam through Cain might illustrate that for us. <clears throat> There were two lines, one from Seth and one from Cain. And Cain, we know, was an ungodly man. And Cain, we know, was a man whose children bore his characteristics, and it was not a flattering resemblance. Look at chapter 4 and verse 10. The Lord saying to Cain after he had killed Abel, his brother, what have you done? Listen. Your brother's blood cries out to you, to me, from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. But notice the last part of God's judgment on Cain. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. You will never have a chance to settle down. That's a tough, that's a tough sentence. Some of you travel... As I mentioned, we were in Germany last year. We were gone for about four weeks. Slept in nine different beds in four weeks. Never had a chance to stay in one place long enough to fully unpack. And you know what it's like when you get home. What's the first thing you want to do? Well, first thing I wanted after being in Europe for four months, or four weeks rather, first thing was unpack my suitcase. But the very second thing was, have you ever had breakfast in Europe? Cold cuts? Bread? You've never heard of waffles? sausage. I wanted to go out for some good old American grease. <laughs> I wanted to come home. I wanted to get in my bed. I wanted to take a shower in my shower. I wanted to hang my clothes in my closet. I wanted to be home. God said to Cain, you're never going to be home. You're going to be a restless wanderer all your life. 
Now, in a very different sense, Peter says that we as Christians are strangers and pilgrims in this earth. We're not home yet either. How did Cain respond to his punishment of being a restless wanderer? What's really the first major thing Cain did in response to God's sentence that you will be a restless wanderer? Look at it in verse 17 where it talks about he lay with his wife and she became pregnant and gave birth to Enoch. Not the Enoch we've talked about earlier, another Enoch. What's the next phrase? Cain was then building a city. God said, wander. Cain said, no way. God said, you're not going to belong anywhere. Cain said, I will too. I'm going to find some way to make it down here. This world is my home, and I'm going to build me a city. God, you kicked my parents out of the garden. I don't like being out of the garden. But I'll tell you one thing. If I've got to spend my life out of the garden, I'm going to see to it that I'm going to be as comfortable as I can be. I'm going to build me a city. I'm going to get a city in the suburbs. I'm going to get a home. I'm going to get a fence. My kids are going to have a yard to play in. I'm going to see to it. I have the good life. I'm going to build me a city. Last summer, Rachel and I went to the Christian Booksellers Association. That's quite an event. If you have a chance to go there, it's, a, it's an exciting time. And, and in some ways, a very disturbing time. 11,000 people came to the exhibit hall at the Christian Booksellers Convention in Orlando. Is that where it was last year? Orlando? And um, the exhibit hall was the size of roughly four football fields. And any book lover would regard this as pretty close to heaven. And I walk through those aisles and people give you free books. It's just a tremendous place. But I noticed, I, I think I noticed, I didn't do any kind of a formal survey, but I noticed two trends in the books that were coming out last summer, and I suppose this summer was the same. I wasn't able to go to CBA this summer. But last summer I noticed two trends. One is the incredible proliferation of how-to books. Here's how to make your life work. Here's how to drug-proof your kids. Here's how to get your marriage the way it ought to be. And while I believe many of those books have real value, and while I believe there's many things that we can do to preserve our children from getting on drugs, while there's many things we can do to make our marriage work, when that becomes our priority, we're building a city. Do we go to the Bible to find principles by which to live to make our lives work? Is there no higher calling than that? The second trend that I think I noticed, for lack of a better phrase, I'm going to call mysticism. The first trend was, here's how to build your city, it seemed to me, speaking as critically as <clears throat> I think some of the books perhaps merit. The second trend was a more mystical bent of my search for God in the middle of a difficult life. And you know the writers who are most effective in talking about that today from my perspective? And I'm not sure if I'm correct here. Some will disagree and that I may be entirely wrong, but it seems to me that the Roman Catholic mystics are the ones who are talking about that. The Brennan Mannings, the Henry Nowens, the Joseph Gerzonis. They're the ones who were talking about my search for God. But those weren't the books that were widely in evidence. Some of them sell well, but the books that were in every bookseller's stand were as here's how to. Folks, if we live our lives looking for here's how to, are we living in the spirit of Cain, who was determined to build his city? And is it possible that that spirit is incompatible with pursuing God?
spirit of Cain, I believe, is with us today. And the spirit, the spirit of Enoch needs to be nourished in our midst. I want to understand what I mean by building cities. Let me tell you a story. A couple I began counseling with last September, still working with off and on, saw them just a week ago. <clears throat> Young couple, middle-aged couple actually, maybe in their late 30s, early 40s. A couple that came to see me because they had no passion left in their marriage. There was no joy. There was no closeness, a very common malady, complaint in marriages today. There was no real intimacy in their marriage. She was a very stiff woman, very articulate, very bright. He was an uncertain, unaggressive kind of guy who had no idea how to move in and touch his woman's soul in meaningful ways, as very few men these days do. The presenting problem was that there just is no closeness. There's far too much tension and way too much fighting. In the course of our counseling, into the counseling about three months, she made known to me a history of rather significant and difficult sexual abuse. All sexual abuse is difficult. Hers was not extreme, but all sexual abuse is hard. And she had been badly abused by an older brother when she was about a 10-year-old girl over a period of six months. And she had never dealt with it. And we spent some time dealing with that and working that through. And uh, by the time we finished dealing with that, there seemed to be a real measure of release. I'll never forget the session after we uh, worked with it most deeply when she just uh, at one point just sighed very deeply at the end of uh, one very meaningful conversation between myself and this woman. She just sighed very warmly and I said, tell me what your sigh meant. And she said, for the first time I feel released. I feel like I can be a woman for my husband now. It's a whole new thing. And I said, well, that's great. <laughs> what did I do? You know. When something works, you want to find out what you did because you haven't got a clue, typically. You want to do it with somebody else. Any counselor will tell you that when you work with people, it's, my definition of counseling is diving into a cesspool with one can of deodorant. <laughs> After the spray is all gone, it still smells real bad. Life is a mess. I wonder if you know how bad a mess life really is. My first book was called Basic Principles of Biblical Counseling. That's about the dullest book title in the history of Christian books, I think. I wanted it to have a rather jazzy title. This was back in the days I wrote that book when Tom Harris's book was popular, I'm Okay, You're Okay. I wanted my book to be called I'm a Mess, You're a Mess. <laughs> Seemed a whole lot more biblical, but the editor said, no, the title's very interesting, but the book is not, so let's call it Basic Principles of Biblical Counseling. <clears throat> Things really are a mess. When something gets better, you get pretty excited about it. Well, she got better. She felt released as a woman, and she started moving in good directions. Um, a couple sessions later, the husband said to me during the opening of session, he said, I think we need to deal with my wife's sexual abuse more thoroughly. I said, well, why? But don't forget the point of the story. Cities, the spirit of Cain. You've got to see what it is, not just theologically from the Bible, but practically and personally in people's lives, so we can recognize it in our own, so we can know what it is to repent more and more deeply, which is part of what it means to find God. And he said, I think we need to deal with my wife's sexual abuse more thoroughly. I think you dealt with it too quickly, and there's still more to be done. I think there's still pain down there that needs to be surfaced and lanced, and, and the wound needs to be brought up, and the, all the difficulties need to be looked at more carefully, and there needs to be much more happening. I think you dealt with it far too quickly. And he was angry with me. And I turned to his wife, and I said, do you, do you share that opinion? And she said, no, I just feel great. I don't know what he's talking about. Now, what's going on? Well, a little discussion revealed that about two years earlier, when she and her husband were sitting in my colleague's sexual abuse seminar, the memories of the sexual abuse came back to her, and they hadn't never been in her mind before since the day it happened, which is not unusual. 
Many times memories of abuse just return and bring a terrible nightmares. Well, she remembered the sexual abuse in the middle of a lecture of my colleague in a seminar he does on the topic of sexual abuse. And as she remembered and recovered the terrible memory, she just fell apart and this crisp, bright, articulate, together, controlling to some degree woman just fell into her husband's arms. And for the first time in his life with this woman, he felt deeply valued and necessary and connected and important to her. He felt wonderful as she collapsed into his arms. As we talked about it, it was clear that what he wanted me to do was to get her upset again so she'd fall once again into his arms. That's building a city. Do you see? I will find some way, the spirit of Cain, I will find some resource within me, with or without his cooperation, I will find some resource within me by which I can put my life together the way I want it to be. If you have some suggestions, I'll consider them, and I'm going to do what I think makes sense so I can have this happen, so I can feel close to my wife, whatever it takes. What I really care about is me and how I feel, how she feels, is secondary. I know what I want. That's building your city. Turn to the book of Malachi for just a minute. Another brief sidetrack. We'll be back in Genesis in just about a few minutes. Malachi chapter 3. I want you to see something. I want us to think about how we struggle through life looking to find some way that we can control that will make life work. Good friends of ours, a pastor and his wife, learned just a few months ago that their teenage son has been smoking marijuana for the past many months, heavily involved with the wrong crowd, rather deeply into marijuana, been involved in theft. What's the first thing a godly good parents whose hearts are broken? What's the first thing they think about when they find out their son's on marijuana? What do they want to do? Somebody tell me what to do to get my kid off this. I've got to find some way to make this different. Where's a verse? Where's something? Where's a biblical principle? Where's the book? Where's the seminar? I've got to find some way my kid's life is going down the tubes. God help me, I've got to do something. Will you tell me what to do? You can't find it in the Bible, so you close it quickly and turn to some other book. Your prayer life is no longer worshipful. Your prayer life becomes frantic. God, what do I do with this kid? Nothing matters more to me right now than knowing what I'm to do to get this kid off dope. I understand that feeling and I know the pain. And I understand the urgency of that, and many of you do as well. But that comes very close to a building our cities mentality. I'm going to find something to make happen what I want to see happen. As opposed to, God, my heart is broken. My son is on drugs. My daughter's pregnant. Whatever's going on, God, my heart is broken. And I long for wisdom. Yes, I will read books. I will go to seminars. I will talk to my pastor, to a counselor. I will do what I can to help my boy, my daughter. I will do all that I can. But God, there's a higher priority than relieving the difficulty now. God, in the middle of this, can I learn something of what you're like? Can I find something of your joy, your peace? Because only when I know you more deeply will I be equipped to go to my son or daughter more powerfully. You know, the most powerful moment I've ever experienced in my life was one of our boys was in trouble. 
and I had to go visit with him. I was doing a seminar. The next morning, I was slated to give a lecture on how to raise kids. My wife called, told my associate that there were some difficulties. And after the seminar at 9 o'clock that night, I didn't know. Dan did. And he said, uh, let's go back to the room. And I said, no, I want to get something to eat. He says, we're going back to the room. I'm the president of the organization. He doesn't tell me what to do. But he was firm. I went back to the room. He told me. I've had some struggles in our family. Flew home the next morning after I gave my lecture. Went to be with my boy and I prayed, God, there's something more important now than straightening out my kid. I need to know your character well enough to reflect it to him. I've never been so controlled by the Spirit of God in my life. I'm an angry man. I wasn't angry that day. That's when my son gave his life to the Lord. And you know what he said? I overheard him on the phone. He said, I couldn't believe Dad. That gives you some feeling for how I've been for the past some years. What do you want to do when a problem comes up? Solve it! Come on, God, help! That's what I mean by using God to solve problems. I'll find something under my control, some principle from the Scripture, something I can do, that when I do it, it'll change the situation. Look at Malachi. Malachi chapter 3, God says in verse 13, You've said harsh things against me. The book of Malachi, as many of you know, has seven stinging indictments that God brought against the Jews in his day. In every case, the Jews' response was, What are you talking about? You've said harsh things against me, says the Lord, and yet your response is, What? Yet you ask, what have he said against you? I'll tell you what you've said against me. Listen to God's charge in verse 14. Here have been your words. I've heard them. You have said, and I quote, it is futile to serve God. What did we gain by carrying out his requirements by and going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty? What did we gain by carrying out his requirements and going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty? Anybody getting sick of trying to live biblically because it isn't working too well? The peace that you thought would come isn't there? A woman that I have as much respect for, I think, as I have for any woman that I know is a woman who met her husband in Bible college. She courted according to all the biblical standards. Remained entirely moral. They prayed together. They committed their lives together to go to the mission field. Both strong Christians. Counseled with good Christian pastors and counselors, parents both approved. Everything was the way it should be. They courted biblically according to all the principles of premarital relating. They married. They had two children. Five years later, he said to her, I'm a homosexual and I'm leaving you for my lover. They left the mission field, of course. They went to the... She left... He left his wife, went to live with his male lover. Her two boys grew up in a fatherless home. One became obese, tried to kill himself twice. The other became a delinquent, got seriously involved in drugs, and the state told her about a year ago when she called me about this, the state told her that you must give up all authority to your children, to your child, and if, if you do, then we'll take him and put him in one of our institutions. He's incorrigible. 
She said, what do I do? I can't handle them at home. Do I give up all responsibilities as a mother and give them to be a ward of the state? Where's Solomon? I don't know. I don't know what to do. She lived biblically. What are your guarantees? We need to find God. We need to rest in His character. We need to be able to say with passion in the middle of moments like that, God, I still call you good. When Bill died in the plane crash, Dad later told me that he went out in the backyard when he got the news and he screamed for ten minutes. He screamed at God for ten minutes and his words were these, when God wouldn't repent... I decided I better trust him. Is God good when your son's killed in a plane crash? Is God good after you court biblically and then five years into your marriage your husband leaves you? Your children develop all sorts of problems. The story's not finished. There's better things happening, but that may or may not continue. We don't know for sure. Her, the, her former husband developed AIDS and died just a little while ago. You've said harsh things against me. You've said living for you doesn't work. I've tried it your way. I've got a better plan. Listen to the words. Verse 15. Now we call the arrogant blessed. What a phrase. Blessed are the arrogant. Blessed are the ones who are saying, God, living by your standards and according to our understanding of your will doesn't seem to make happen what we want to happen. I'm going to depend on things within me. That's arrogance. And I'm going to be happy, blessed by depending on me. After God accused them of saying that blasphemous sentence and saying a few more things to the Jews, he closed his mouth for 400 years. Anybody not speak to you for a while? Anybody just not willing to talk with you and it's been a month, a year, ten? Then the letter comes from the person that hasn't talked to you for years. You tremble with excitement as you open the letter because when the silence is broken, the words are significant. God broke the silence 400 years after this when he, I hate to admit it, but when he sat When Jesus sat and the official silence was broken, when God incarnate officially opened his mouth for the first time, took the authoritative position of the rabbi, sat and said, after a 400-year silence, his first words were, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the arrogant. No, you're wrong. 400 years later, Blessed are the poor in spirit. I want you to have joy. I want you to know life. But I want you to understand you don't have the resources to make it work. And by trying to get your wife to talk about sexual abuse again so she falls apart in your arms, that's not going to work. It's not going to bring you the nourishment to your soul that you long for. And as you live biblically and date according to biblical morality and pray about your choice of a mate, what I promise you is I'll be with you no matter what takes place in your life, but don't claim promises God has never made. Very dangerous natural tendency in our parts. Cain's city-building spirit, the spirit of arrogance, 
Adam had two children. After Abel was killed, he had Seth and Cain. The godly line of Seth led to Enoch, who was a model for how to approach God. The ungodly line of Cain led to the seventh from Adam, whose name was Lamech. And I want you to see a few things about Lamech. We'll contrast him with Enoch. We'll make a few points about the contrast between the spirit of Enoch and the spirit of Lamech and what it means to know God, and then we'll close. Look in verse 19 of Genesis chapter 4. Seventh from Adam to the line of Seth was Enoch. Seventh from Adam to the line of city-building arrogant Cain was Lamech, who continued on in the spirit of his ancestor in a city-building arrogant spirit and said, I will make my life work. I'm going to find some way to get things down here the way I want them. I'm going to believe that life is an orderly arrangement and I can discern the order, learn what to do, so that when I do it, things will happen as I want. That's the spirit. And listen to what happened with Lamech. Verse 19, Lamech married two women. He's the first polygamist in the Bible. Why? Well, back in that culture, size of family, numbers and family was, was power. I will find whatever resources are at my disposal. I'll get two wives, have more kids, will take over, will become powerful. I'll get two jobs. I'll do this, I'll do that. I'll find some way to make my life work down here, and that's my priority. And God, my fist is clenched at you as I say it, the spirit of Cain, and now his descendant, Lamech. First thing you notice, he married two women. Second thing you notice... To his three children, he, all, he gave them all similar names. We'll not take time to look at it in detail. But the three children that he had, he gave similar names. And each name is drawn from a Hebrew word that suggests movement or aggression or moving out into your world to make something happen. I want kids that are going to go out and make something happen in this world. My life is going to be what I want, and my kids are going to be extensions of me. A familiar spirit? The spirit of Cain. Spirit of Lamech. One of his kids was a farmer, the second a musician, the third a toolmaker. Honorable professions all. It all depends what you use them for. Third thing about Lamech you want to notice is in verse 23, his boast. He said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, listen to me. Wives of Lamech, hear my words. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech is avenged seventy-seven times. His boast, I will destroy whatever interferes with my plans. My bottom line is to get what I'm after in life. And if God wants to bless, that's great. If he wants to give a few suggestions, I'll consider them. But my priority is not to know him. It's to make my life work. How entirely wrong and how thoroughly common in counseling offices these days. Counselor, tell me what to do to put my life together. You know the answer to that? What a counselor needs to say when somebody says, tell me what to do to put my life together. My son's on drugs. My daughter's pregnant. My marriage is falling apart. Tell me what to do to put my life together. The answer is, do you want to really live? Yes, I want to really live. Well, I can tell you what life is. We have it on good authority. This is life that you, what? 
that you know Jesus Christ and the Father who sent him. Life is to know God, not to figure out what to do to make things work. I want to suggest as I close that there are two ways of approaching God. The way of Lamech and the way of Enoch. The way of Lamech can be summarized this way. And if this is the spirit with which I come to God and ask him to bless these plans and to bless the spirit, if I take the spirit and hide it beneath a certain spiritual facade that makes me look acceptable and I can become a deacon, elder, pastor, missionary with the spirit of Lamech, of Cain still within me, then I'll, I'll not know God. I'll not find him as the way, the way he wants to be found. The spirit of Cain, the way of Lamech, something like this. I know what I want. I know what I need to enjoy life. I need godly kids. I need a better job. I need less pain. I need the depression to go away. I need less strength to the deviant urges within me. I know what I need to get my life together, and I'm going to find some way to make that happen. I'll manipulate God through prayer. I'll find whatever resources I have within me and I'll use them to achieve any purpose to achieve my purposes. And if God has any value in my life at all, it will be to cooperate with my purposes. I want what I want in this life. I will build my city the way of Lamech. The way of Enoch is so different. I want what God wants. I want to make him known. I want to know what a perfect man is like. I want to know what a, the God of this universe is really like. He says to know him as life. My soul longs for life. There's a thirst in my soul. I long for what I don't have. God, you're life. Now, whatever happens in my life, I really want to know you better. I can't find the formula to make it happen, but I know that I'm aspiring toward knowing you better. God, I want to walk with you and cooperate with your purposes like Enoch. I demand nothing now. I pray for much. Pray for your children. Pray for your marriage. Pray for your job. Learn biblical principles of handling finances and raising kids and communicating in your marriage. Valuable things to learn, but don't make it a demand. Because once you follow all the biblical principles of courtship, your husband might leave you. God, I demand nothing now. I pray for much, like a child to a loving father. Daddy, I'd like this. But my joy is not necessarily in what you give or withhold. My joy is that you're listening and you're providing according to your plan. I demand nothing now. I just want to know you better. And I'm willing to endure whatever bad comes and to rejoice with whatever good comes. And God, I know I have no worse problem in my life beneath the difficulty with children, beneath the sexual urges, beneath the money problems, beneath the marital difficulties, beneath the depression. God, I know that my biggest problem is none of those things. My biggest problem is I'm really hung up on myself. I'm not yielded fully to you. Oh, God, thank you for your forgiveness. I will devote myself to building your kingdom. The spirit of Cain realized through Lamech and the spirit of Enoch. Very different ways to come to God. No demands, no agenda but his, and a recognition of sin as a far more significant problem than pain or anything else that life brings our way. 
My burden this week is to tell you as best I can at my understanding of things now. If I come back in ten years, I hope I'll say it a lot better. But where I am now, I want to share with you as best I can my understanding from the Scriptures, what it means to know to know Christ. George MacDonald, the old writer that C.S. Lewis claimed as his mentor, once began a sermon by saying words to this effect, If all my words fail to draw you to Jesus Christ, they're all of no value. And then he said, Have you ever considered that maybe the only real purpose in life is to get to know Christ a little bit better? And I hope I can share something that will be meaningful in your pursuit of him as I struggle with you to know our Lord better. Father, thank you for the fact that you're available to us. The veil has been rent so that you can come out and grab us and embrace us. Father, we look forward to the day when the glass that we see through darkly will be entirely taken away. The day when we'll stand in your presence and you'll hold us. You'll embrace us. And you'll tell us, well done, and we'll wonder why. We'll be so in love with you. We'll see you as you are. We'll, there'll be no possibility of sin because it will seem so utterly stupid and awful to sin in the presence of that level of goodness. Father, look forward to the day when we're going to be in an environment where sin is unthinkable because we see you as you are. Father, give us a little clearer glimpse of what you're like now so that whatever struggles remain, whether they're difficult sexual problems in our lives or memories of abuse or depression or difficult marriages or kids that are breaking our hearts, God, help us in the middle of all this to respond responsibly, to learn the principles and to do all that we can to be of help and to make an impact and to deal with our problems. But God, help us to have the far deeper priority in the middle of all the stresses and strains and struggles of life to know you better. Reveal yourself to hungry hearts this week by your grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to Larger Story Messages with Dr. Larry Crabb. To subscribe, visit LargerStory.com.